You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. The 24-hour news cycle has become a controversial mainstay of American political life, but TV news hasn't always been this way. In the early days of cable television, there was a lot of optimism about how it could be a force for public participation and democracy. Here's CNN founder Ted Turner announcing the launch of the channel back in 1979. This news service will be called the Cable News Network and will program continually updated half-hour segments of national news, business news, sports and features 24 hours a day. I know that we will succeed and I pledge to you that we will not let the American public down. The rise of CNN is just one part of a much bigger story about cable television and how it came to be a dominant force in American politics. Our next guest chronicles that history in her new book, which shows how cable TV in many ways failed to live up to its political promises and ultimately set the stage for the fracturing and polarization we see today. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you watch news programming on cable TV, one network, lots of networks, or do you steer clear of it? Either way, why? Has TV been a big part of your own political identity? Has that changed over the years? Were you around for the early days of the rise of 24-hour cable news channels? How did your political viewing change at that point? Were you ever a big C-SPAN fan? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Catherine Kramer Brownell is an associate professor of history at Purdue University. Her newest book is called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Catherine, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. You trace the, the technology, the spread of cable TV going back as far as the late 1940s, which I didn't know. I want to fast forward a little bit to that moment uh, when CNN and around the same time-ish C-SPAN come around. Remind us what the TV news landscape looked like before those big uh, cable networks came along. Yeah, that's really a transformative moment for the cable industry. C-SPAN launches in 1979 and then CNN the following year. And before that, people got their news on television in, you know, 22 minutes, maybe an hour in a documentary series, but it was very limited. And this was part of the problem. People across the political spectrum could agree that having so little time devoted to informing the public about public affairs meant that they weren't getting the information they needed, that viewpoints were, um, inherently excluded, especially if they are on the far left or the far right of the political spectrum. And so it's this effort to change news coverage um, that really motivates a diverse range of people to, to see the possibilities of cable television and having a more expansive dial and having more programs that didn't have to just cater to those half hour or one hour time slots. And now CNN, it's become such an institution, it's hard to think of it as a scrappy underdog, but it and some other uh, parts of the cable uh, content and uh, cable industry really throwing a lot of elbows out there trying to break what they claimed was in effect a monopoly of the TV networks. Can you talk about how that that played out in the early days? Mm -hmm. Yeah, during the 1960s and especially into the 1970s, 
uh, network broadcast television had a monopoly. It was regulated by the FCC to control and to dominate the television landscape. And initially, cable TV emerged as simply a way to extend the signals of broadcasting to areas that couldn't access them, uh, but because of terrain or distance. Um, and so it really replicated and expanded broadcasting fare. But as frustrations with, uh, with broadcasting mounted, cable TV operators realized that there is a business opportunity in playing up the limitations of broadcasting and selling cable not as an extension of broadcasting, but as an alternative, as a competitor, which could give more voice to these demands for diversity of perspectives on in television. Yeah, there was a political workshop. You start off the book, actually, in 1984, discussing how broadcasting had failed democracy and how cable could save it. You know, th- that was the argument from the cable industry. Were there wider hopes from people uh, in the political world and beyond that, yes, this is going to boost our public participation? This is going to make democracy better because we have more sources of information. I think there absolutely were hopes, and there were many people uh, within the cable industry and activists, uh, many grassroots activists outside of the industry that truly believed that decentralizing information would enhance democracy because it would get so many different viewpoints and um, and different perspectives out there to shape um, conversations, uh, to shape American culture, but to shape American politics as well. But ultimately, what happens is that this this democratic promise um, really becomes a public relations tool by the cable operators who see that highlighting the problems of democracy and the potential of the democratic potential of cable is good for business. It's good for business um, uh, because it allows them to to craft some very effective um, relationships with elected officials. C-SPAN, for example, is a nonprofit, but the way that Brian Lamb got people, uh, cable operators to buy into that concept was he understood that he told them that if you want elected officials to know what cable is and to work to invest or to expand its reach, you need to give them a stake in it to, to, to bring cable to uh, Capitol Hill. And that's exactly um, what, what C-SPAN ultimately does. And so there's this, this effort to shape regulatory policies and to really advance more favorable regulations by forging these relationships with the elected officials, but also just making money um, by selling, getting people to buy in, getting subscribers to buy in, that they can find community and civic participation, and perhaps more importantly, sports and entertainment on the cable dial. So it's a multi-pronged effort that's really about expanding the business of cable television. Talking to Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions, maybe your memories at 800-642-1234. Catherine, you were just talking about how the cable industry was reaching out to politicians. You also cover a lot in the book how politicians started to realize that, hey, these things are changing the game. Uh, They're changing our PR, our outreach. What were some of the first shoots of that as people realized what they could do with cable? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So cable does open up TV to new voices. And overwhelmingly, it's those who are frustrated, who are not finding opportunities on network broadcasting programs, uh, that they are turning to cable out of desperation. And, and so there are a variety of different experimental strategies. Um, ones deployed by some fringe people, especially you see this um, in the Republican Party in the 1980s, where figures like Newt Gingrich, um, or a minority, uh, kind of a fringe member of the minority party um, in Congress at this time. And and he's using something like C-SPAN. He's manipulating the camera angle, manipulating coverage to get his ideas out there and to build a national following. He's not using cable to talk to his constituents back in Georgia. He's trying to create conflict on C-SPAN. Frequently and overwhelmingly, initially, this happens to an empty chamber where he's making these grand speeches, making um, viewers think that he's, you know, calling out opponents and they're they're scared to challenge him. But in fact, he's talking to an empty chamber. And I think it's an example of kind of the political manipulations and calculations over how to use cable TV are very much at play with politicians thinking about how they can use it to their political advantage, not necessarily to inform constituents, but to really help um, them gain more political power. That's Brianna Caller. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Chris, hi. Hi. Um, so I, I just try to be careful here with the use of language surrounding what we see nowadays when we say something that's such and such news organization. News would imply something that's factual, perhaps trustworthy, fact-checked, and then more often than not it is opinion and editorial uh, kind of pointed towards a specific audience and really an, an unbiased, you know, factual bias of what's going on. Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And an interesting point, Catherine, the blurring that happens over time on cable between uh, news and, as Chris says, uh, opinion and editorial. Chris is exactly right. And that that blurring happens over, you know, really from the 1960s through the the 1990s. You have a triumph of that blurring by the 1990s. And part of the reason that that um, becomes blurred is because you have a shift in the idea of the public interest. Increasingly, the public interest, uh, which used to be why upholding this public interest requirement, used to be why network broadcast news programs existed as proof that they were serving, they had this civic role. That ultimately fades away as um, as um, uh, the media landscape becomes deregulated and the consumer interest becomes conflated with the public interest. And then it becomes all about what is going to sell, what's going to get ratings, what's going to generate attention rather than necessarily what is going to inform people about the world around them. Um, and it, there's this really interesting moment I chart in the book where you have uh, Walter Cronkite raising concerns um, about the, the you know the the consumer interest overwhelming the the um the, the public interest. And um, and when cable operator John Malone says, no, the people will demand, the market will demand accuracy um, and, and, uh, and factual information. But I think that we've seen that that's not necessarily what has happened. Chris, thanks for the call. We're talking to Catherine Kramer Brownell from Purdue University looking at her new book. It's called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America, 
from Watergate to Fox News. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think the uh, 24-hour news cycle has been helpful or harmful when it comes to informing the public? Are there any cable channels or programs that you think have been a force for good in American politics at some point? Or do you think it's been mostly negative over the last few decades? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with historian Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable, Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you there for the major moments in political history that aired on cable TV? Do you remember the switch when uh, cable TV got big, especially in the news? Do you watch any of the big networks now? Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Mark is with us in Green Bay. Mark, hi. How's it going? I was wondering uh, what she thought of how the elimination of the fairness doctrine by Reagan had an effect on this. And then also Fox just got sued by Dominion for $700 million. How will stuff like that keep things like Fox in check? Mark, thanks for the call. Two big points there, Catherine. First of all, you do in the book talk a, a lot about the Fairness Doctrine and its passing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Fairness Doctrine is part of that dere- the, the embrace of deregulation, um, of the reliance on the marketplace uh, to deliver for democratic debate. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Mark Fowler, the FCC chair under Reagan, you know, tries to eliminate the Fairness Doctrine. And, you know, there's a bipartisan coalition that comes together to try to ingrain it in law via legislation. But ultimately, Ronald Reagan vetoes um, that bill. Um, And and again, he relies, he says that we just need to allow ideas to compete in the marketplace. And so the, the fairness doctrine is really significant for the broadcast industry more broadly. And that's where you see its um, first ramifications. It allows, um, it kind of frees broadcasters. Cable operators weren't always um, regulated by that as well. It was very murky as to whether it applied to cable operators or not. But it allows broadcasters, notably radio um, uh, hosts like Rush Limbaugh, to kind of really double down on partisanship, double down on some of the, the, the tactics that proved really effective, like Newt Gingrich stoking outrage, to do that not just um, for maybe an hour at the end of the the congressional day, but for an entire program um, nonstop. And so it allows um, this this more partisan programming to tap into, again, the marketplace and to show that it can be very lucrative. And, And I think that's what you see, you know, Fox News emerges in 1996. It's looking at um, um, uh, Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch um, are looking at Rush Limbaugh. They're looking at how he's able to use these um, these tactics to stir outrage 
um, and to make a lot of money. And, and so that's really the, the business model um, behind Fox News. And I think that with the Dominion um, lawsuit, you see some, you know, this level of accountability that the market had not been able to provide. Um, and, I, and so I think that, and it also kind of showed that Fox is pandering to what they think that um, their, their TV subscribers want, that they will do anything to try to keep their loyalty. And this, again, um, is a product of relying on the marketplace to deliver for democracy. Thanks for the call. We'll go to John now in Eau Claire. John, hi. Hey, I just wanted to share that one time I asked my 90-year-old father-in-law what was the biggest change that he ever saw in his lifetime. And he said the 24-hour news cycle and all the, pre- all the uh, stress that it caused and all the potential for propaganda that it caused. And I remember being a little boy, probably in second, third grade, probably 1972, and I heard about the communists in Russia and how the little kids were propagandized by state media. And I remember feeling sorry for them. I mean, I truly felt sorry for these kids being propagandized in communist Russia. And today, the free uh, cable media But study after study shows that over 80% is tilted one way. John, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, John's uh, father-in-law says the 24-hour news cycle, the biggest change he saw in his lifetime. Catherine, uh, you would make the case it is a pretty big deal. It really is significant because it's dramatically expanding the information that people have about the world around them. It's really decentralizing the news. And and there are some benefits to this. Um, Again, it brings new voices, new perspectives. The network broadcast television newsrooms run, you know, with Walter Cronkite um, at the center stage. Those were incredibly exclusionary. They were elitist. They, um, They really did kind of adhere to a perspective of white heterosexual men. Um, And so opening up the news um, really creates all of these possibilities. Um, But again, it's always driven um, by by the search for profits. Even Ted Turner, that great clip you played at the beginning, where CNN is launching to promise to deliver understanding and peace, Ted Turner wanted to make money. And so he's really finding different ways to do news on the cheap. So he he wants to make news the star, is what he says. He doesn't, doesn't want to pay someone like Walter Cronkite. Well, when there's breaking news, this this provides people with access to information. But then what happens when there's not breaking news or there's not a crisis? Then you have the reliance on a lot of this commentary and more opinion-based shows. And that's where, again, to the earlier point, you get the conflating of news and entertainment that can um, have, have um, a, a, it, it can really undermine um, uh, public knowledge. Talking to Catherine Kramer Brownell about her new book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. I want to get to the fragmenting, Catherine, before we run out of time. You talk about uh, in the book the incentive structure for politicians. Instead of trying to give a more general message to reach as much of the public as they can, you see cable changing the incentive to reaching a particular audience with particular messages. How does that change things? 
Yeah, so the, the book really charts that you have this shift from broadcasting, right? Uh, trying to appeal broad to broad audiences um, through radio and television. Um, and so someone like uh, Franklin Roosevelt is using the fireside chats to try to build um, popular support for his programs. Um, and he's, you know, again, uh, circumventing critics to speak directly to audiences. But again, the whole idea is to make his programs more likable. Um, cable is a little bit different it, because it relies on, on more narrow segments um, and, and mobilizing very vocal, um, narrow, smaller segments of the population. Um, it's all about cultivating loyalty, not necessarily likability. Um, loyalty to individual brands, uh, loyalty to individual lifestyles, infusing that with politics. And so it makes it more about kind of connecting to what is seen as the quote unquote right demographic. Those people that'll be more passionate, that'll be more engaged about politics, and not and kind of eschewing that responsibility of reaching everybody and that that desire to to build um, to build consensus around ideas, candidates, and policies. And I think a lot of people would point at social media and the internet for doing the things you just said. You move that dial back a lot further with cable TV. That set us up, uh, it seems, for the fragmented politics we have today. Exactly. I think that the way in which social media has unfolded, this search for, you know, anything that will generate ratings and clicks and what what does that? Um, you can see the business model time and time again that shows that getting people angry um, is what can really motivate that business. Um, it's not necessarily encouraging, um, uh, you know, an informed conversation um, or, you know, even a respectful conversation in any capacity. It's really tapping into... Um, um, that that kind of cultivating different brands, different identities. And, you know, one of the things that cable introduces is it shows how profitable echo chambers can be. And, and I think that that, um, that that really is at the root of some of our uh, po- polarization today in both media and politics. Catherine, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for the conversation. That was Catherine Kramer Brownell, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University. We've been talking about her new book. It's called 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. According to the 2020 census, the population of Americans aged 65 and older saw its largest ever 10-year numeric gain, an increase of 15.5 million people from 2010 to 2020. That group also had its fastest growth rate of any decade since the 1880s, largest ever percentage point increase relative to the rest of the population. 
If that trend is sounding familiar, you may have heard the term silver tsunami. The baby boom generation started turning 65 back in 2011. As a result, the demand for senior services has been steadily increasing. At the same time, there's a growing need for training and recruiting workers for senior living and other services for older adults. The national trade group Argentum, which works with companies that own and operate senior living communities, forecasts that by 2040, there will be 3 million job openings for senior living. A program that started at UWO Claire is working to meet the need for workers in senior services. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Is that you? Do you work or have you worked in some form of senior care or services? What led you into that line of work? What kind of training did you have? Did the pandemic impact your employment at all? And did you leave that line of work? And what questions do you have about getting into professional senior care of any kind? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Doug Olson is president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit organization focused on leadership development for aging services. For more than two decades, he was with UWO Claire's nationally recognized healthcare administration program and director of the Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence. Doug, welcome to Central Time. Thank you, Rob. And Shayana Vanell is also with us. Shayana is currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire while working as a caregiver in the memory care unit of a senior living community. She's a member of the Vision Center Advisory Council. Shay, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Doug, uh, take us back to the start of this healthcare administration program at UW-Eau Claire. What problem were you trying to solve? Well, the healthcare administration program at UW-Eau Claire has been around since 1976 and uh, was a very solid program, one of the few in the state for sure and in the country. We had uh, kind of a big shift around 2000. The godfather of the program, Gene Decker, did a great job running it for many years. But then we took it to a different level and we formed what you mentioned before, this thing called CHASE, the Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence. And that program was really all about bridging providers and the university together to kind of work on really making it a solid program for students aspiring to be looking for a career in aging services leadership. And that's really been our focus. And then here we are in 2023, Doug. What are some of the biggest challenges in bringing people uh, into this line of work? Well, we actually uh, had done a lot of things at Eau Claire that we're kind of using to move forward with this new vision center. One of the things that we kind of really emphasized was the importance of that field experience administrative training program that allows people to go out after their time on the campus with solid curriculum and then moving to a place where they can learn the practice and the trade of leading organizations that are taking care of people's parents and grandparents. And that significant shift was we also mandated that it would be a paid experience so we could get the very best talent to do the work and learn the practice of senior living administration and do uh, exceptional things around providing the best quality and services possible for those individuals living or needing to live in a setting or requiring services, too, because the spectrum has changed a ton over the years, Rob. And, Shay, let's bring you in. Uh, What made you want to study to prepare for a job in senior living and care? Honestly, it is not what I came into college looking for. I was a bio pre-med major, and I feel like a lot of times in high school, you kind of get two options. If you want to be in healthcare and you want to help people, you can be a doctor or a nurse. 
So I was like, okay, I like kids. I'm going to be a pediatrician. And then by second semester, I was kind of feeling the weight of the student loans were not going away. And I still had eight to 12 more years of school before I could start paying those down. So I was sitting in my chemistry class the first week, and this kid next to me was like, I'm an HCAT, and I'm taking this class for fun. And I'm like, okay, well, I hate chemistry, so you're weird for taking this class for fun, because that is not me. Um, But tell me more about HCAT. And so he told me a little bit more, and I loved the fact that they said it was a heart for caring and a head for business. So I went back to my dorm room, joined HCAD 101, and within two weeks I had switched my major and also joined the student org on campus and tracked Doug down and begged him to give me an internship. <laughs> HCAD Healthcare Administration. Uh, Shay, what is it? You're also doing some work as a caregiver now. Uh, what would you say to people who, you know, maybe that line of work isn't on their radar about what a, a fulfilling line of work it could be? I'd say just give it a shot. I definitely had the same fears as many people do have that senior living homes are kind of smelly and scary and dark. And just getting inside of them, whether it's visiting a family or a friend or even volunteering, whatever you can do to get inside and realize they aren't the stigma that follows them. Um, I think that really turns people's heads around and makes them double think about what senior living can offer them. We're talking about a program that came out of UW-Eau Claire that uh, tries to bring professionals into senior care to work in uh, various kinds of senior care facilities. Doug Olson is with us, president and CEO of Vision Center, and Shay Van Ale, who is going through the program at UW-Eau Claire, working in a center herself. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you worked in senior care yourself at any level? Love to hear your experiences, how you got into it, the challenges. Do you or your family member count on people doing these jobs? Are there enough of them out there? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Doug, we see a lot of lines of work saying, hey, we're not finding the staffing we need. We have a shortage of workers. Is that particularly true in 2023 for various kinds of senior care work right now? Yeah, that that trend in all industries right now is impacting senior living as much, if not more. I think COVID really amped up the uh, challenges in senior living, and I think there were many heroes that rose to the occasion. But it certainly has been one of those that we've really worked hard, not only through Eau Claire, but through the Vision Center, to start changing the narrative about these jobs really fulfill purpose, provide meaning, have a variety of uh, possibilities with them. Our particular focus, Rob, is all about finding good leaders because good leaders, stable leaders, talented leaders help that culture and that workforce tremendously. And that's one of the areas that we see when you talked about the number of people that are not going to be in with positions that are unfulfilled uh, we estimate probably 250,000 of those jobs are in the leadership roles. Uh, so it's one of those things that at the core of what we're trying to do is not just replicate, but try to expand the landscape of senior living leadership programs across the country. Shay, can you talk about the kind of things you're getting in your classes that are you hopefully preparing you to be a leader, maybe an administrator in senior care? So one of the great things about the UW-Eau Claire program is that during your final year, 
what that would be on campus. You are put into a long-term care facility where you are working as the assistant administrator. So for my senior year, that is what I'm doing now. Um, and some of the things that I've learned in classes don't compare to what you see in the facilities. You can learn about the statistics and the F tags and everything all day long, but until you're in the community talking with the residents, talking with the staff, feeling them for what they think needs to improve, the classes don't mean much once you can get that hands-on experience. We're talking about efforts to train people for work in professional senior care, a program started here in Wisconsin. Our guests are Shay Van Isle, who's currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire and working as a caregiver in the memory care unit of a senior living community. And Doug Olson is with us, formerly director of UW-Eau Claire's Center for Health Administration and Aging Services Excellence, currently president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit focused on leadership development for aging services, taking some lessons from Eau Claire and sharing them around the country. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guests, either about studying to join the senior care field or addressing the workforce gap? Are you uh, one of the baby boomers who's uh, hoping people go into this line of work and provide some of the services you're looking for or maybe for a family member of yours? If you work in this industry, love to hear your perspective as well. Join in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're talking about efforts to train people for work in professional senior care and a program that started here in Wisconsin. Our guests are Shay Van Isle, currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW-Eau Claire, and Doug Olson, president and CEO of Vision Center. That's a nonprofit that works on these issues, bringing lessons from Wisconsin to the rest of the country. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Doug, can you talk about uh, the gaps you see out there in the kind of... uh, academic training, the kind of work you've done in Eau Claire and now around the country uh, that you're trying to fill here. Really focused around coordinating partnerships between providers and universities, providing uh, a new narrative about the field, and also providing resources. We started uh, this journey about five years ago with a sabbatical I did, bringing together all these stakeholders across the various sectors of the field. And once we got started with that what turned out to be a project turned into um, a momentum and now is an initiative that is really focused around trying to bring universities to a place where they're graduating more more students that are either at an undergraduate, graduate, or even a mid-career uh, from university programs. So we started working with about 20 universities uh, we moved that up to about 40, and now once we launched last fall, it's been about 60. And we're working with them in a variety of ways to help them accelerate the development and growth of these programs. These are not programs, like Shea said, you know, these are not programs that someone comes into a university always and is really, it's not front and center like accounting or biology or chemistry or nursing. And so we've really tried to raise the bar around what we're doing with universities across the country and we have done some things around assessing what early career paths 
people are looking for from a student perspective. We're doing some innovative stuff around field experiences. That is really what Shay talked about is the secret sauce of mm -hmm. these programs. That's really where the hands-on learning and problem solving and really understanding how you're working with people and for people really happen. I always get a kick out of Shay saying she's learned more in three months in her field <laughs> experience than she did on campus. But it's no, so, it's, no, no, no. It's so <laughs> critically important. And, you know, we've really worked hard. Uh, we do... Uh, a number, we do a symposium every year. We have webinars. We have other things that are really kind of advancing the field. And, you know, when you mentioned it grew out of Eau Claire, there's a lot of best practices that came from Eau Claire. But there's a lot of things we're learning as we work with other universities across the country. We're working with universities in the West, the Midwest, the East, the South. And uh, each of them come from different kind of perspectives. Some will come out of a hospitality school. Some come out of a business school. Some come out of a health science school. So collectively, we're kind of all learning together, and we're making great progress. Let's bring uh, in a caller at 800-642-1234. Nancy is with us in Grafton. Nancy, hi. Hello. Uh, I just have to tell you that I had a very, very large family. I had a lot of children of my own, but I always had wanted to be a nurse. And, of course, then it was a little too late to go to college or school to be a nurse. But I could be a nursing assistant, and I went to tech school. And I was a nursing assistant at our county nursing home for a long, long time. And I'm telling you, I, I loved the people that I cared for. And, and the thing is, it, it reminded me of when my dad was in a nursing home up in uh, up north. Uh, Anyhow, I went to see him one day, and the door was closed and knocked on the door, and the gal said, oh, you can't come in now. We're doing a dressing. I said, I'm coming in. I'm a nursing assistant. I've seen it all. I had not seen it all. My father was his... I could see his bones in his back because, obviously, they had not transferred him or taken care of him and turned him and such things. And then uh, I called the state, and I told them, and they, uh, they told me that they were only following doctor's orders and... I'm telling you, I never saw anything like that before. But even after I retired from the, from our, our county nursing home here, uh, I took care of so many people. Mm. I was, you know, with them when they died in their homes. And, and Nancy, I, I got you. We don't have a lot of time left. But thanks for sharing your experience. I'll say I'm hearing from Nancy uh, the value of, of caring if you're going into this line of work. And really, it sounds like uh, based on her experience with her dad, she wanted to put all of herself into the care she was giving to people. How important is that, uh, being willing to have that, uh, I guess, that emotional uh, vested interest in the work you're doing? It's huge. It's The long-term care industry is hard. It is not easy. It's not even fun some days, and it is something that if you do not have the passion for this field, you're not going to succeed. And that's why these paid internships are so big, because it gives you the opportunity to see if this is what you want to do before you jump in, because the residents and the staff don't deserve someone who doesn't care. And that is something that my current preceptor is huge on, is these grow-as-you-go programs where she wants the CNAs to become TMAs and RNs and LPNs and directors of nursing. She wants to 
encourage the passion with everyone and, and show them that they can be more than what they are today. If they have the passion, they can do anything in this field. Nancy, thanks for sharing your experience. We're talking about uh, an effort to bring more people into senior care at the highest levels and at all points. Doug Olson is with us, president and CEO of the group Vision Center, and Shay Van Isle is at UW-Eau Claire studying to do this. Still time for your calls at 800-642-1234. Doug, you and Shay have both uh, said something along the lines of, you know, nobody goes into college thinking they're going to go into this line of work. You know, I know some fields were reaching into high schools saying, hey, Put this on your radar as a potential career. Is that maybe a next step? Yeah, we are already. Um, first of all, I want to, Nancy, I'm sorry about that one situation mm-hmm. with your loved one. I also worked as a nursing assistant, and I would echo what Shay said. It takes passion. It's hard work. They're never paid enough uh, for what they do, and I think society really values. During COVID, we saw how much family members and community members valued how much those staff members really contributed to the quality of life for their person. You know, one of the things that we are doing, Rob, is we are reaching into high schools and colleges to get the perspective from these new emerging leaders so that we're really talking about the profession of senior living leadership in a way that kind of resonates with kind of away from the stigmas and the stereotypes of this is a this is a profession that every day you make a difference for a loved one or a staff member and uh, you have a tremendous impact. I often say to people that the real test of a country is, you know, how they treat those that are underserved or underprivileged or frail. I think that is really the moral compass that our country uh, really should be thinking about. And I think you mentioned before, I mean, that silver tsunami is right there at the front door, Uh Many people would say, why did you start this, Doug? I would say we should have started it five years ago. Uh, One of the things that is clear across the country is that we are definitely needing to make sure that we have people because you talked about there will be more people over 80 by the year 2032 than that are under 18. Uh, This is one of those kind of demographics in our country that's maturing that is really going to have to pay attention to how we do what we do and we're going to have to do it differently, and that's why there's a lot of creative new solutions around how do we really take care of people's loved ones. And, Shay, uh, given the time of year right now, somebody might actually be in their car uh, getting ready to be dropped off on their campus for their freshman year. Talk directly to them, if you will, to put these careers in senior care on their radar, maybe if it's something they hadn't even thought of before. I think it's really just about keeping your eyes open, and one of my biggest things, I was terrified to change my major and terrified to look (laughs) elsewhere because I had felt like I failed, and that was not the case. If it is, I failed upwards, so I'm okay with that, Um, but I would say just get involved. Take 101 classes that maybe aren't up your alley, but they could turn into something so much more be a part of the student organizations. You're not a nerd if you are. They are fun, and they help you make friends, and it helps you find where you're supposed to be, and you will find it, and you will fall in where you're supposed to be, and it is very rewarding once you get there. And, Doug, let's speak directly to another audience uh, now. Maybe somebody's out there listening who works at or maybe even uh, runs some kind of senior care facility, and they're not involved with Vision Center yet. Uh, speak to them and how they can get involved. Well. What I would tell them 
is that one, they can contact me directly at dolson at visioncenter.org. And there's also, the train has left the station. Uh, there's lots of room on the train yet. And if people want to get involved, uh, there's a variety of ways to do that, whether that's being involved in connecting with the university themselves, whether it means finding a placement for a student that wants to do an internship in this field. We really, really understand the value proposition of having someone new to the field with lots of different perspectives that really want to make a difference as a valuable asset for any senior living organization that is, whether it's assisted living, senior housing, skilled nursing, home and community-based services, there's a broad spectrum, and we're going to need all of them. And what I will also tell you know, the listeners is that it's also a very, very rewarding career that is uh, got a lot of growth opportunities, and it's one of those things that I don't think you will ever look back, just like Shay said earlier. We'll leave it there. Doug and Shay, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. I've been talking to Doug Olson, president and CEO of Vision Center, a nonprofit organization focused on leadership development for aging services, and Shay Van Isle, currently pursuing a degree in healthcare administration at UW Eau Claire. We talked to them about, about Eau Claire's successful program, training the next generation of senior care professionals. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.